Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 88 this morning. Our text comes from Psalm 88, if you'll join me in God's Word. With God's help, would you turn your hearts as I read. Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a mascal of Haman the Ezraite. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath is swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder whether you find passages like this disturbing or encouraging. When you are reading your Bible and you pass over a, a passage like Psalm 88, do you, do you try to rush past it as fast as you can? Or is there something about it that you find strangely comforting, strangely reassuring to your heart? Some have called this the most depressing psalm in the Psalter, that you can't find a sadder prayer anywhere else in all of the Bible. And I'm not here to, to dispute that this morning. It clearly portrays a man who is at his breaking point. Uh, if he hasn't hit rock bottom already, he is sure that he's about to. He's sure that he's about to get to that place. He's in the middle of what has often been described as the dark night of the soul. And that's all magnified by the fact that this psalm breaks the normal pattern that we see psalms of lament uh, falling into where typically you have a, a, a psalmist bringing some kind of complaint before the Lord. And then that is followed by a petition that God would intervene, uh, that he would do something 
about it, which in turn is followed by a pledge, a pledge that the psalmist would give God the praise when the answer comes. Psalm 22 is a famous example of of that. It, It begins with those famous words that Jesus quoted from the cross where he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And David goes on to say there that he is a worm. He's not a man. He is scorned by mankind that his strength is dried up like a potsherd that God lays him in the dust in the dust of death. And so then comes his petition. He says, "But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid." And then there's that pledge. He concludes, "I will tell of your name to the brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you." And then in verse 24, for he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. You see the, the clouds break, the, the sunshine of God's countenance and his presence come streaming through, and there is that relief. Or you could look at Psalm 73 where, where Asaph cries out to the Lord, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then he goes on to say, but I can't be numbered among those. I cannot see myself there. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Uh, My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on in that psalm to outline just how low He really got in life, even to the point where he began to question whether the life of faith was really worth it at all. He said, all in vain have I kept my heart clean, until at last you get to verse 16, and he says, well, when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I got here, until I got to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. You see how God grants him the clarity that he needs, and he fortifies his strength so that he is able to move forward trusting the Lord. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 88 doesn't have that. There is no happy ending to this psalm, And yet there is so much that it has to teach us here. Now before we get there, I want you to get get a sense of the the situation that the psalmist finds himself here. First we see that it's one of deep darkness. Look at your Bibles with me in verse 1. It says, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles." And my life draws near to Sheol. So you see that the situation he's facing isn't one of just isolated difficulties here or there. It's a life he describes as as one that is full of troubles. Literally, he says that his, his soul is sated with troubles. The way that you would be sated after a great big meal uh, many of you are going to have a great big meal this week on, on Thanksgiving, and you're going to push away from the table, uh, sated in a delightful way, 
uh, after great feasting. Well, here the psalmist says he's sated, only it's miseries that, that fill him. He's had his fill of trouble. So there's an intensity to the turmoil that he's experiencing. This is not some minor trial. In verse 4, he uses this very uh, vivid picture to describe the kind of depressive state that he finds himself in. Uh, he describes himself as being alive and yet dead at the very same time. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. So he pictures himself lying in the grave as the slain would, as if he is in this mass grave uh, where there are no headstones, there's no remembrance of you, you're just forgotten. To put it in our vernacular, he, he's saying, I'm, I'm as good as dead. Usually the words set free that he uses here refer to a bondservant who has been set free, who has been loosed after many years of service. Here, uh, those words are stinging. They're not liberating. He has been set free uh, the way a man who has just received his pink slip from work has been set free. There's nothing liberating at all about this. So he finds himself in deep darkness. And then secondly, we see that there's prolonged suffering. You look at verse 15. He says, afflicted and close to death from my youth up. So this isn't just a short season. He's saying, this is all I have ever known. If you look up at the, the, the superscription, the heading of this psalm, it says to the choir master according to Mahaloth Leonoth. This is often where we find the name of the tune that the psalm is designed to be sung to. And we don't know exactly what is in view here, but the word Mahaloth is related to the Hebrew word for illness or, or affliction, sickness. So some scholars think that, that maybe this could be referring to some sort of lifelong ailment uh, that this man has been dealing with. Maybe something like leprosy, some other lifelong affliction that has given rise to these words. Now what's clear as we look at it is that he's be he feels as if he's trapped by it all. He is shut in so that he cannot escape. In verse 8, he's helpless. In verse 15, verse 17, the Lord's dreadful assaults close in on him. So his whole life is one of affliction, and he, he feels imprisoned in his anguish here. And then third, to make matters worse, he can see God's hand in it all. He can see God's hand behind his suffering. And this is probably one of the most difficult aspects of this psalm. Look at verse 6, if you will. He says, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Now, beloved, just mark in your minds that he says the very opposite 
of what you hear many people say in the world today when some tragedy occurs. Well, God didn't have anything to do with this. And certainly we need to be careful uh, when we talk about the intersection of God's sovereignty and the brokenness and the pain uh, that we experience in this world. But notice how this man, without assigning any blame to God, without making him the author of evil, still says, Lord, I know you're the one that's allowed these things to come into my life. Twelve times he says that. Twelve times he says, this is the Lord's doing. So he's interpreting his life through the lens of God's sovereignty in all things. Now that's good news, brothers and sisters. That's good news. Why do I say that? If God isn't sovereign over all things, what hope do we have? What hope do we really have that his good and gracious promises can be accomplished in our lives? What grounds of assurance can we ever possess that his purposes are going to be fulfilled in our lives if what the psalmist says isn't true? Now, on the other hand, if even our worst afflictions exist only within the bounds of his eternal purposes, nothing can jeopardize his people. In Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10, God says that he is the one declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, what do we know about his purposes in the world? We know that they're good. We know that they're gracious. We know that they're redemptive. He is sovereign and he is good, which means that our suffering and our affliction is not an accident and our troubles are constrained by the counsel of his will. So that is good news. And yet we can look at this passage and we can see that the psalmist may not be entirely aware. He may not be thinking in terms of those greater purposes in the economy of God. Isn't that the way it often is in our lives when troubles come pressing in upon us when we cannot sense the nearness of God, that we, we lose sight of his purposes. We lose sight of what he is doing. We lose sight of these larger spiritual realities that he's bringing to effect in our lives. Well, sometimes all the, the preaching in the world and even our prayers uh, seem to fail us in, in, in bringing to, uh, to, our, to our, our senses these realities and truths. And this is the situation Haman's facing. His, his suffering is intense, it's prolonged, it's divinely inflicted, and he's at the brink of despair. It's one of the bleakest psalms in the, the whole Psalter. It starts in a minor key, it ends in the minor key, the very same way. And I'm I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that in that uh, this, this passage shows us that, yes, it's possible for the people of God to go through seasons, even very long, perhaps lifelong seasons, uh, depressed, 
dismayed, to find themselves utterly overwhelmed. But it doesn't leave us there. Psalm 88 is written for our edification, for our instruction in righteousness, and there are lessons here for every one of us. So what do we do? What do we do when we encounter the dark night of the soul? What do we do when you're in the position that Haman is in, and you might say, darkness is my my only friend stretching ahead as far as you can possibly see. There is no relief in sight. Well, first, the Bible would say you carry your troubles and your frustrations to the Lord. You carry all your frustrations and troubles and pains to the Lord. In the depth of your depression and pain, your soul's full of troubles. You go to the one place you know to go, and that's to the throne of the living God. What does it say again? Verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night. You don't sit on your hands. You don't wallow in self-pity. You bring all of your frustrations and pains and disappointments and sorrows, and you carry them to Yahweh, who alone is able to save. And you, you begin to pour out your heart to Him. This is not pious prayer, is it? Uh, this is not distinguished prayer. This is not white-collar religion. This is the aching of a soul before the living God whose presence you cannot feel. It's a cry. In other contexts, that word cry uh, describes a shout of jubilation. It's, It's the sort of utterance that you'd have when you won the victory, when you're totally overwhelmed, not with sorrow, but with joy. Well, here it's the opposite. It's the cry of agony. There's one translation that reads this way, by day I have screamed by night in front of you. May my prayer come before you. Turn my ear, turn your ear to my loud shout. Now friends, I would ask you, what does faith look like to you? Does it mean keeping a stiff upper lip? Does it mean projecting an air of strength? Something that says you're spiritually impervious to sorrow or heartache or fear or frustration. I wonder whether you've ever thought that prayers such as as these are expressions of faith and not faithlessness. It may not be triumphant faith. Uh, It may not be particularly exemplary faith, but it's faith. It's faith nonetheless. It's the kind of faith you see in Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, it says, In hope he believed against hope that he should be the father of many nations, as he had been told. If you were to ask a hundred Christians what the book of Psalms is is about, I would venture to, to guess that the large majority would say, well, it's about praise. It's about thanksgiving, and there is much about that in the book of Psalms. But when it comes to the different kinds of Psalms we have in uh, the book of Psalms, the, the lion's share actually are Psalms of lament. More than 40% of the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament. Now, why do you think that is? Is it not because we live in a world uh, that is ravaged 
by the corruption and brokenness of sin? Is it not because there are injustices in the world, that this is not the way God has designed the world to be, that there are things in this life that at times you cannot make sense of? The biblical authors aren't embarrassed by that. We have an entire book in our Bible called Lamentations. The scriptures show God's people lamenting over all kinds of things, lamenting over the brokenness of the world, lamenting over their own sin, lamenting over the sin of others, lamenting over the way God's name is blasphemed among the nations. Our Savior wept over Jerusalem when he looked out and saw the hardness of their heart, and we weep over the lost souls of those in this world. The the psalmists often lament over the apparent absence of God's presence in their life, the feeling that God has somehow forgotten them. In Psalm 88, the, the author here speaks very openly about that, very openly about the idea that his life seems to be hurtling inexorably toward the grave. And I want to just underscore this this morning, that the psalmist has not erected some sort of artificial boundary between what is permissible to bring to the Lord and what isn't. Now he says, you can bring it all. You can bring it all to the Lord. He brings it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'll hasten to add that what we see him experiencing here isn't something that Christians with just some kind of weak constitution uh, experience. If you look at, in your Bibles at the heading of the psalm again, you'll see it's attributed to Haman, the Ezraite. Who is he? Well, we don't know a lot about him. This is the only, scri- uh, the only psalm that's actually ascribed to him, and he's mentioned just a couple of other times in the Scriptures in passing. But we can glean some interesting things about the man. First, the Bible tells us he was incredibly wise, that he was surpassed only by Solomon. First Kings chapter 4 tells us. He was a Levite, so he was someone that was involved in temple worship on a regular basis. Second Chronicles chapter 5 tells us he was a singer. In fact, it says specifically that it was his special duty as one of the leaders of the worship to sing in unison in praise and thanksgiving to Yahweh. In particular, it was his responsibility to declare these words, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's the same man. For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. The undying character of God's love for his people was to be ever on his lips. This was to be the chorus of his life, you could say. So these were things that he understood well. It was not that this man was somehow facing a theological deficit in his understanding, something that he just didn't get when it came to his, his, his knowledge of God or the the character of the Lord, or the tendency of God's ways. All of that to say, what Haman is facing in Psalm 88 is something any of us can experience. It is not just the plight of those who don't know better, 
or those who need a better understanding of the sovereignty of God? Does your understanding of theology allow room for a man like Haman, the Ezraite, or, or a man like Job, a man who walked with God, he led a blameless and a upright life, he feared God, he turned away from evil, and he still lost his children and all of his property, he was afflicted. Does your understanding of the Christian life allow for that sort of thing? Our confession of faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, says that true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken. And it goes on to say that it can be diminished or interrupted by our negligence in preserving it by falling into sin through temptation. And then it says this, or by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and even suffering such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light, yet they are never destitute of the seed of God and life of faith and are preserved from utter despair. Now, if you will look at the, the proof text to that statement, you will find Psalm 88 as an example there. You'll see passages like Psalm chapter 30 in verse 7. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. So this is the witness of Scripture. It is a witness that we may not particularly enjoy. It is a witness that we may not find ourselves talking a lot about in, in church, but it is a truthful witness. Brothers and sisters, the Christian faith isn't true because it solves all your problems. It isn't true because it means you'll never experience suffering or affliction or confusion or in your life. But in the midst of those things, we have a God that we can run to. Even when our subjective sense of his nearness fails us, he has given us an unshakable hope founded on the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where the grounds of our assurance comes from. So this psalm says, when you're in Haman's shoes and everything you have has been stripped away, all you know is a soul full of troubles. The God of the Bible is a God who hears your praises, but he also hears your sorrows, your frustrations, and your pains. So bring all your pains, all of your sorrows to him. Secondly, bring your deepest, darkest questions and perplexities to the Lord. Have you ever wrestled with the Lord? Is there anyone here who has a faith that's never struggled? There is. I, I would love to talk to you after the service today. Observe with me that Haman does not shy away uh, from asking those questions that are uncomfortable to ask, the sort of things you don't bring up in polite company. In verse 9, he says, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands before you. So if he's been suffering from a, for, a long time, for, for a long time, he's also been praying for a long time. You see that in verse 1, verse 9, 
Uh, verse 13, his prayer life is frequent, it's consistent, he is praying day and night. His eyes may be bloodshot, but he keeps setting these questions and his confusion before the Lord. And, and bound up in the questions that he is asking of the Lord is this terrible feeling that somehow God has forgotten him. God isn't answering. If God is the God who hears the cry of his people, why doesn't anything change? If you look at verse 10, uh, he asks this series of rhetorical questions. He says, God, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Now, sometimes at points like this when the Old Testament is being read, that you'll hear people say, well, now what you have here is a primitive understanding of the afterlife, that the Old Testament saints didn't really have uh, an idea of what happens beyond the grave. They didn't have a theology of eternity all worked out. Well, besides being totally wrong, that misses the point entirely. Haman's focus here is not on what happens beyond the grave, but what his life holds while he's living, while he is living on the earth. Essentially, he is saying this, God, if you don't rescue me now, it's going to be too late. How am I going to sing to God be the glory, great things he has done, if I go down to the grave? How am I going to proclaim your faithfulness? You notice that there is a, a profound assumption running through the prayer that he is offering up to the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying, God, my one purpose in life is to give you praise. It is to declare your steadfast love. If I go down to the pit, if I die, there's going to be one less person on earth to give you glory and make known your faithfulness. So save me for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your name. That's his argument that he sets before the Lord. Verse 12, are your wonders known in the darkness? Are your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Haman says, my deliverance is going to result in your glory, O God. You see, church, how he's, he's thinking beyond his own estate. Even in his affliction and despair, his heart and mind are set on the glory of God. Of God. What, what a lesson that is for us. What a testimony that is. Now we're not quite done. Things really begin to reach a fever pitch when you get to verse 14. These are the classic why questions. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Why do I feel so alone? In verse 8, he talks about how all of his companions have left him. Is it possible that maybe he did have some deadly disease, something like leprosy, and everyone left him? Was he facing some kind of other suffering or per persecution? Could it have been that he actually had more friends than he realized, but his uh, depressive condition had caused him to lose sight of that reality. We can't say for sure, but his sense of things is that not only has his friends deserted him, but God has. 
as well, that there's loneliness on both sides. And there are no easy answers here. There's nothing that relieves the tension. There's nothing that uh, breaks the anxiety. The voice of God does not come in and interject, well, here are some things you've got to understand, Haman. There is no Romans 8.28 or Genesis 50 and verse 20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, that doesn't mean it's not true, but it's just not here. What is here, though? Well, you have a man who in the crisis of his faith is still running to the living God and not away. And that is instructive. He runs to God, not from him, even when the answer does not immediately come, even when he has sought the Lord and he has petitioned God so many times before, when he has prayed the same prayer a thousand times before, he still keeps coming to God. Isaiah 50 and verse 10 says, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and lean upon his God. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and lean upon his God. You don't have to have all the answers to all your questions before you begin to put your faith in God, before you trust him. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. I think it's important to acknowledge that while this psalm does end in darkness, the last word here is darkness. This psalm is not the last word. It's not the last psalm in the Psalter, and it's not the last word when it comes to the hope of the believer. And just as the, the, the author of this psalm would have been thinking of other truths and other uh, biblical principles that gave him good ground to go to the Lord in prayer to make his appeal, so must we. We have come together today to remember that we have a Savior who has entered into our darkness, whose life was full of troubles himself. He was shunned by those who were closest to him. His closest friends, his own disciples, left him in the hour of his greatest need. He hung on the cross. He was forsaken by God, his one companion, darkness. The Lord of life went down into the depths of the pit, into the grave to defeat darkness and death. And so we have this promise. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 10 after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It is true that God works all things for good for those who uh, love him and are called according to his purposes. That is the hope of the, cro of, of the gospel that Christ was abandoned so that we could be brought in. The good news for us is that whatever sense of 
abandonment we may have, whatever sense of loss of the nearness of God's presence is only an apparent absence. It's not a real absence. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So take whatever it is that you are facing today and begin to appropriate this. Let the assuredness of Christ's word to you establish your hearts. Put your trust in him. Cry out to the Lord and continue to cry out to him. And this is our last observation. When you can't sense God's presence, go on praying. Pray and then continue praying. Cling to the Lord. Confide in your God. Make him your refuge and your trust. Cast all of your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. That's what the psalmist does. He casts himself again and again and again into the lap of the Lord. What I want you to see here is that God's delay has not caused his faith to collapse. In fact, uh, the psalmist's prayer life, the very existence of this psalm is proof that he can't let go of the Lord in spite of the anguish that he, that he feels. Out of my distress, I cry to the Lord. Sometimes our prayers are little more than a groan. Sometimes we don't even have the words to say, but the Spirit helps us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So go on praying. And this way, brothers and sisters, it may be that uh, the dark night of your soul and your seeking of the Lord in it may be some of the clearest evidence of your standing with God. That even when relief doesn't seem to be anywhere on the horizon, you still pour out your soul to the living God, the God of your salvation. Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Now how can you say that, Job? Because assurance of salvation rests ultimately not in our earthly lot, not in a trouble-free life, not in a subjective sense of God's nearness, but in the saving power of a covenant-keeping God, a God who gave his Son for us on the cross. So this psalm does not end on an upbeat. It doesn't turn around. But it ends with a man who is still talking to God. He is still seeking the God of his 